One day, I will get this right. Would you please find your Bibles and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Today's sermon text is Psalm 45. It can be found on page 471 in the Bible in a chair in front of you. This is the word of the Lord. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning. Um, Pray that our hearts would be open to receive your word. I am not preacher enough to be able to adequately express the beauty of the King in this passage of Scripture. So, Father, would you, by your Spirit, peel back the veil this morning and give us all a glimpse into the beauty of the King, into the beauty of King Jesus, the beauty of the Bride, your Church. And, God, would you help us to leave here with an inexpressible joy that we can't see you, that we don't see you, we love you. Increase that for us today. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If we have any Tolkien fans in the room, you would be familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Frodo Baggins is one of the main characters, and he requests permission of the newly crowned king at the end of the book. He wants to travel home. Everything has kind of been done. Am I missing something? Okay. Everything has been done that needs to be done. All the wars have been won. And he wanted to begin his long journey home to the north. But King Aragorn asked him to stay a little longer. And he tells Frodo, the end of the deeds that you have shared, the end of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come. Frodo was confused. He was told he can't go home yet. But his answer came in the summer when Arwen Aragorn's love arrived for the wedding where they would crown her with blessing. And the book says this. It says, Frodo, when he saw her coming, glimmering in the evening with stars on her brow and a sweet fragrance about her was moved with great wonder. 
He said, at last, I understand why we have waited. This is the ending. Nestled into the book of Psalms is a unique chapter of the Bible that declares that very truth about the real world in which you and I live. The rightful king has come. He has conquered. He has taken up his throne. What else is there to be done since he has established his gospel reign already? Psalm 45 answers that question. This reminds us why weddings are such a big deal. History is racing towards a great wedding and our hearts need to be reminded of this. Now, I understand that for many of you in this room, you may not be a huge fan of weddings. If you had heard before you came in here that we were going to be talking about a wedding, many of you would have probably said, sweetheart, I will pick you up after the service. I'll have the car ready to go. But you're in here and this is the most incredible wedding that we're going to be able to take a look at. On the face of it, Psalm 45 is a strange psalm. You may think it's a strange psalm to be able to, to preach about on a morning where we are talking about joy with the Advent. There isn't really another psalm in the book of Psalms like Psalm 45. We often approach the psalms like it's a jukebox. And, and, uh, and you want to find the one psalm that's gonna, that you want to hear at that moment. That's going to be right for you in that moment. And so we put the quarter in and we, we want to play a certain psalm. But Psalm 45 typically isn't a psalm that we would select in the psalm jukebox. And by the way, that's not a great way to select psalms, by the way. Sadly, it's not one that we would read and not one that I have poured over in the past. We don't really know what to do with Psalm 45. It has similar features to the Song of Solomon. Some have said that uh, this psalm may have been written for Solomon's wedding uh, to his first wife, an Egyptian princess. And there's really no clear evidence of that, though verse 10 may lead, has led some to believe that this was written for Solomon. We'll look at that in a moment. This song was most likely sung at weddings, most notably and fittingly, the wedding of kings. And as frustrating as it may have been to sing this song in some terribly wicked king's weddings, think of King Manasseh, if you were familiar with King Manasseh. Yeah, the people of God kept on singing this song, even when they were in Babylonian exile. It's as if they knew that this song only made sense if one day someone came to make this psalm make sense. If one day when they sang the song, they would be able to sing the song and know that this is not an exaggeration. They knew that one day someone better than Solomon would come. Someday someone better than David would come. And when they sang the song, surely it brought up a longing for them to find this king. And the song found its king when Jesus came into the picture. So let's read it together. The the heading says, uh, chapter 45, of Psalm 45, to the choir master, according to lilies. It's probably a musical term. A mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. Some Bibles say a wedding song can be translated a wedding song, which either one of those would make sense if as we read in Psalm 45. The terms noble theme we see here, a pleasing theme. Look at verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Literally, a good word is what this word, a noble theme, a good word. It indicates that the psalmist has been meditating on the scriptures. It indicates that the psalmist has been reflecting on God's promises about the king that would come from David's line. And and he's declaring that he's writing for that king that would come one day. It's like it's like he's been stewing on a good word as though the thoughts with him are simmering, being stirred up as he reflects On God's word, he's declaring by the spirit of God, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there is a king that he must sing about. There is a king that we must sing about. His heart has been stirred so that when he speaks, when he says my tongue and when he writes with the pen of a ready scribe, it's it's with a heart full of wonder. He's essentially saying, I've been pouring over the scriptures 
And I have to tell you about the king who is to come. He's better than anything and anyone you could ever hope for. So we're going to look at this is titled the beauty of the king. And we're going to look at this first section of the king's beauty in verses two through nine. Verse two says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is a beautiful person we're 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 reading about. He was unrivaled in his beauty as a person. The word beautiful, beautiful is actually doubled in the original language. Beautiful of beautiful is this person. And this is no superficial attraction. I was thinking about the commercials a couple of years. It ended in 2018. The most interesting man in the world, the Dosa Keys commercials. The agency's rationale for the brand strategy, you remember this, was uh, he was a rich man in stories and experiences, much the way the audience hopes to be in the future. So they're, they're really appealing to what people want to be. The commercials were humorous and engaging. He would perform feats such as freeing an angry bear from a painful looking bear trap. Shooting a pull trick shot before an audience by shooting the cue ball out of the mouth of a man lying on the table. Catching a marlin while cavorting with, uh, with uh, in a Hemingway-esque scene with beautiful young women. Winning an arm wrestling match in a South American setting. He said things like, I once parallel parked a train. Or I bowl overhand. It's funny. He was the stuff of legends. That was what the commercial was intended to do. But Psalm 45 presents someone that is actual, actually a reality. Presents to us the most beautiful man in the world. One with a strong, radiant, masculine beauty. The most handsome of the sons of men. The most handsome of anyone that's ever walked this earth. And some of you might rightfully say, a good point would be, I thought that Jesus, those of you who know your Bible in Isaiah 53, you might say, I thought Jesus had no beauty that we should desire him. But John Calvin, I think, reasonably states that this pointed more to his lack of worldly pomp and regal status. There was really no hype about Jesus. Regardless, one thing we can say about Jesus is that he had a kind of beauty about him that no one else who ever lived had. I read one author who said that it was as if his soul was speaking through his countenance as he was talking to someone. You ever known someone like that? You think this is a beautiful person that I'm talking to and it really doesn't have anything to do with how they look. It's the kind of beauty that we can suppose was present with the Lord Jesus He was at one time brimming with nobility, yet at the same time, he had a surpassing charm of graciousness about him. There were times when he came into uh, when men, grown men would come into his presence and they were compelled to fall at his feet. Yet at the same time, little children felt compelled to climb up into his lap and nestle in his arms. He said to grown up, busy men, follow me. And they dropped everything and followed him. It's fairly common to find someone to be beautiful on the outside. But if you were to get to know that person, you might find all sorts of nastiness or ugliness or profanity or vulgarity. But there was no disconnect between his heart and his interaction with people. The distraught, the disgusting, the down and outs, they all recognize Jesus as their deliverer. And no one else in history has ever grown up from birth to the prime of manhood with his mind and his body untainted by sin like Jesus did. As one commentator put it, in his heart dwelt love such as no other person has ever held. And behind the veil of human nature was the majesty of indwelling deity. The countenance of Jesus was not a mask to hide the grace and glory, but it was a mirror to reflect it. We are dealing with a beautiful person. But I want us to also notice the beauty of his words. Verse two it says grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. He was unrivaled in his gracious speech. John 1:14 tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace 
and truth. Jesus came in grace and truth, and that included his speech. In Luke 2, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem with family and friends to celebrate the Passover. And after it was over, they started heading back home, and they thought that Jesus was with the crowd, with their friends and acquaintances and their, and their family. But they realized he wasn't in the group, and so they frantically go back to Jerusalem to search for him. It took them three days. You talk about a frantic mom and dad. It took three days, and they finally find him in the temple. And the text tells us that all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers as he was visiting with those in the temple. In Mark 1, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The text tells us, And those listening were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Even his enemies marveled at him. In John chapter 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they wanted to arrest Jesus. So they sent some soldiers, some officers to arrest Jesus. And they came back empty handed. And do you remember their defense as to why they did not bring him back? No one ever spoke like this man spoke. That wouldn't cut it today with our military or police officers that would not cut it. No one ever spoke as this man spoke. There was something about his speech that was simply beautiful and profound. It was as if the man standing in front of, it, in front of his audience, whether that be a paralytic, whether that be a leper, whether it be a, a big crowd or perhaps a, an influential centurion, whether it would be Pilate or it could be a, a Roman soldier in charge of putting Jesus to death. All of these people heard his words and they were amazed by him. And it was because Jesus knew everything about them. And he would speak a perfect word to them, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of truth. Even when he was suffering on the cross, the sweetness of his speech was just dripping from his mouth. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, in the context of this particular psalm, it's good to ask basic questions like, well, who wrote this song and who was it originally sung for, or written for? And most importantly, who is he? Who is this guy? So we see this. We see that this king is beautiful and his words are beautiful, but it's not all that's beautiful about him. Let's see if we can figure out more as to who this man is. Oddly enough. We're intended to fall in love with him, not only for the way he speaks, but the, for the, the way that he fights and the reason that he fights. It brings us to the beauty of his war. The beauty of his war. Verses three through five. Look at it with me. Gird your sword on high. Uh, sorry. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majestic ride, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. We'll stop right there. This is a strange thing to inspire praise, isn't it? But the psalmist actually praises the king's work on the battlefield. And we gasp at the thought of warfare today. We hear rumors of our country potentially going into a war. And our thoughts are immediately, I hope there's a good reason for this war. Do we have the ability to finish this war, to get out of this war, if we have to get out of this war? Would this war be justified? Have we exhausted all efforts to make sure that we don't have to go into war? The bridegroom in this psalm, he's a warrior king who girds on his sword, dresses in a way that inspires praise, splendor and majesty, it says in verse 3. In verse 4 tells us that he rides out to war and he's victorious. And his war is a war that is completely just. Today's kings and leaders and presidents jockey for position on the world stage and often fight wars for their own honor. But this king consistently fights for truth. He fights for humility and righteousness. The king is a warrior unlike any other the world has ever known. As one author said, the warrior of Psalm 45 defeats lies with truth. He conquers pride with humility. Humility. 
He vanquishes wickedness with righteousness. He never seeks to overcome evil with evil, but overcomes evil with good. And this victory is not a small battlefield. It's actually a cosmic, eternal victory. We are intended to see that the, the, the Psalm 2 king that we read about last week is actually riding to battle to conquer his enemies. Can you imagine a young Jewish girl named Mary singing this song with her family, living under Roman persecution? What must it have been like for Mary to sing this song before the angel appeared to her and to to wonder, when would God send a king like this? See, those who sang this song, I don't think they had any idea that this victory would be won at the cross of Christ, where he, as Colossians 2 tells us, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them. You remember last week we talked in Psalm 2 about the king that God had put set on his throne. You remember we talked about the global rebellion that we've all taken part in. And God's response was to install his king to be the ruler. And this psalm gives us greater detail into what that would be like. Verse 5 here tells us that your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Augustine says this about verse 5. The psalm goes on to explain where his arrows strike in the heart. There they exalted themselves against Christ. And there they fall before Christ. They were your enemies. They were wounded by your arrows and they fell before you. So from enemies, they were transformed into friends. Your friends died and your friends live. I think it said your friends died. Your enemies died and now your friends live. So we should, like the psalmist, Praise the one who came to do battle with a foe that we could never defeat and to do so at great expense to himself. The king's warfare was horrendously beautiful at the cross of Christ. First John three, eight says it gives us a reason for why he went to battle. It says the reason the savior appeared was to destroy the works of the devil We should join the psalmist in praising the one and the reason why he went into battle to destroy the works of the devil. The next aspect of the king's beauty that is to inspire praise is the king's reign. The king's reign. We'll pick up in verse six. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Beyond your companions, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The psalmist here does something really unusual. Did you notice it as we were reading it? As Jessica read the text, did you notice it? It appears that the psalmist here changes his focus away from the king and then begins to praise God himself directly. But when you read on in verse seven, the second part of verse seven, you just you discover that can't be. He says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. So we are to see that he is addressing the king in verse six as God himself. The psalmist is not just spouting off about God, the immovable God. As a matter of fact, he has God squarely in his sights. And this is where the psalm turns. So here we have God who has God as his God. And this can only be fulfilled if God came to be a king himself. It can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is fully God, God the Son. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 actually quotes this psalm. Verses six and seven, he quotes verses six and seven, and it's it's quoted to express the full deity of Jesus Christ. The word for anointed in verse seven, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. If you remember from last week, God set his anointed one that was uh, it could be translated into New Testament as Messiah. So 
Essentially, the word for anointing can be translated, he has messiahed you. The psalmist knows that son after son after son, king after king after king could not represent God. They could not act like a son of Yahweh that would fully show the world who God truly is, who would act like a son to Yahweh. It was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. All the kings betrayed God, every one of them. So Psalm 45 is addressed to a Davidic king addressing him on his wedding day, holding out what the king should be. And the singers of the song all knew how badly the kings typically failed, but they kept on singing anyway, expecting that even though this king probably would let everyone down, there would eventually be one who would come who could do it. And here we have a singer who sang it and expected that there would eventually be one where the, song, the, the words of this song would not be too extravagant. They would be dead on. It's actually this verse. Verse seven. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's the center of the whole text. It holds the whole structure of the psalm together. The king's choice to love righteousness and hate wickedness is in center stage. God's anointing of him. He made him the Messiah and the unmatched gladness that the Messiah would enjoy. One concept that changed the way that I read the Psalms is to ask the question of the Psalms. What must it have been like for Jesus to sing the Psalms? So what must it have been like for Jesus to sing this Psalm? This was his hymn book. He would he would have sung Psalm 45. We forget that these were actually songs and we forget that the Jewish people would sing these songs together. We forget that Jesus loved God's word, and that he would have sung this Song. So what must it have been like for Jesus to sing this song? I wonder if it gave him great joy to sing this song. Even though he knew what the battle would entail. I believe it did bring him great joy when he would sing it. I wonder if it emboldened him even more to fully and joyfully pursue his bride, the church. Even at the cost of his life. Can you hear him singing? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed, has messiahed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I love it, says that he was anointed with the oil of gladness. And his robes had a beautiful fragrance about them with beautiful music accompanying him. And this is to help us see that his reign is accompanied not by anger, not by disappointment. Right now, he's reigning over us. He's not angry at you. He's not disappointed with you. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness, eternal gladness. The author of Hebrews tells us that we should be looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what Christmas is about. Christmas means that there was a huge chasm between heaven and earth that has been bridged. And we did nothing to accomplish this. It was a battle that the psalmist praised this king, this bridegroom for The living God chose to become one of his own creatures forever. And in the moment when the divine and the human are brought together, implicitly the world has been saved. Someone would reign forever and ever. God and humanity had been joined together. No one could tear it apart. God will never tear it apart. What therefore God has brought together, let no man tear apart. That's rehearsed at weddings for a reason. God's victory at the cross was decisive, and this is a forever deal. Two great theologians, Thomas Torrance and Karl Barth, were talking one day, and Torrance asked Barth, uh, Karl Barth, when in the Christian story did you realize that the world was going to be saved? Barth said, Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross. And then Barth turns to Torrance and asks, Well, when did you know? And Torrance says, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day when he came into the world. 
And one can argue that it was the moment that Jesus was conceived in the virgin's womb. At that very moment, there was no turning back. For 1,000 years of church history, they actually saw the annunciation of when the angel told Mary that she was pregnant. That that was the beginning of the calendar. That New Year's Day was March 26th. The church recognized the first day of the new world was that moment when God promised that he would send his son and his son would rule and reign. And it would be a beautiful reign. Let's move on to the next portion of the song. We come to the king's bride in verses 10 through 15. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she has led to the king with her virgin companions, the ancient equivalent of bridesmaids. They're following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. This is a picture of the king's bride. I want to see characteristics of this beautiful bride. Christopher Ashe points out that at this point in the psalm, after we've read all this about the king and the, and the bridegroom, that we should be asking ourselves, who is the lucky girl who gets this man for her husband? She is adorned with beauty and gold of Ophir, most likely a well-known area in the, in the ancient Near East, known for its riches. She has a wedding gown interwoven with gold. She has embroidered garments. She has a train of bridesmaids in her wedding procession. There are a few things that I want us to see here. First of all, notice what she was told in verse 10. She is to renounce all previous allegiances and lovers. Do you see that? Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The bride must be willing, if she's going to enter into marriage with this king, to leave her former way of life. Her former name, her ways, her associations, that she might offer total allegiance to this bridegroom. It's as if she must love the groom with all of her heart, with all of her mind, with all of her soul, with all of her strength. As a matter of fact, her love for this beautiful king and bridegroom should be so great that it makes all other loves in her life look insignificant. We should also hear echoes of Genesis 2.24 in this, of the command to Adam to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. What's great about this is that she does not need to fear that she's going to lose out. Or maybe that she could have done better. He loves her with an everlasting love. He adores her. And she will see that she could never have done better. That she has not settled. That she had been settling up until him. And she will receive wedding gifts showered on her. And the incredible blessings rain down on her. And it will cause her to never regret marrying this royal bridegroom. So she is to renounce all previous allegiances and lovers. Number two, what I want us to see about this, this bride, the attractiveness of this bride is her submission to her Lord. Verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty. Now, it's at this point that I want to mention how this pictures the bride of Christ, the church. If you haven't picked up on that already, that this is. A beautiful picture of Christ and the church. And only as we, as the church, submit to Christ and his word, will we be worth anything to the world and for God. So when we celebrate Jesus, when we hold fast to his word, it brings God great joy. And as we sing songs together, if we do do so from the heart, then God's joy is among us. We bring God great joy, great glory together when we sing together. 
J.I. Packer says this. He says, what of all the states God ever sees man in gives God the most pleasure? So when God looks at mankind and he sees a man, what gives him the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Hosea 6, 6 says, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The third thing I want you to see about the king's bride in this text is that she is adorned with beauty from the groom. Notice there's really no description of her physical beauty, her attractive figure or pretty face. All the beauty of the bride has been given to her. She is beautiful because he has made her beautiful. It's about what he has adorned her with, either himself or through his influence on others who are bringing gifts to her. This is a picture of what we bring to God as a as a church. He is the one that makes us beautiful. Number four, the fourth characteristic. The bride is given the king's joy and gladness as she follows the way of the king. In verse 15, we're told that with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. If you go back to verse 7, it says that God has anointed him with the, jo- the, the oil of gladness beyond his companions. We're to see that the joy that the king was anointed with will be given to his bride, would be given to his people as they follow the way of the king. In verse 15, if you were to ask a random group of people, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, who is the happiest human being who's ever walked the face of the earth? You may have a few get it right, but the vast majority of them would get the correct answer. Jesus Christ. The happiest being who's ever walked the planet. And you know what? God gives us gives his people his joy when they follow him, when they behold him and love him. In Luke 2, we're told about a man named Simeon who had sung this song, no doubt, in Psalm 45. He sung this song. He longed for this king to come. And we're told that the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he got to see the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, Simeon saw him, took Jesus up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon had just found he had lived a long life. He just found everything that he could ever possibly want in this child. Who one day would be made king. He had found the king. And he was given the king's joy. Do you want that joy? How do we do that? Let's, we'll keep going. In a few moments. Uh, in some application we're going to get to in a few moments. The last thing I want us to see is the king's family. The king's family. Verses 16 and 17. It's not clear in our translations. what verse, Who verse 16 is is um, in the English translation, it's not clear. It's talking about uh, it's talking to it's a it's a it's actually a masculine pronoun that's used in verse 16. So it goes back to talking to the bridegroom, to the king. The king will, through his marriage, have a dynasty of sons. Look at it with me. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you. Forever and ever. The king will, through this marriage, have a dynasty of sons, princes who will rule the earth. Do you remember what the father in Psalm 2, last week we talked about this. In Psalm 2, the father tells the son, do you remember what he asked him to pray for? In the conversation that they had in Psalm 2. It took place right after Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the father tells the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have enthroned you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 45 comes along and celebrates that this 
does not happen without his bride. There is no princess in Israel's history that fits this description in Psalm 45. The bride was made beautiful by grace. It's fulfilled in his people, the church comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Some scholars point out that this exhortation in verse 10 to leave her family strengthens the theory that it relates to Solomon's wedding to the daughter of Pharaoh. Solomon, if you look back at verse 10, where he's the, the, the daughter is or the uh, the bride is encouraged to to uh, to leave, to to forget her people and her father's house. And he was people think this was about Solomon and his first wedding. He was criticized heavily for his marriage to the daughter from a foreign country, an enemy of God. But this was viewed as Solomon's legitimate wife. He had other wives that corrupted his heart. He married women from foreign countries. But the Bible never blames the daughter of Pharaoh for leading Solomon astray. And if you were to look at first Kings 11, you would you would notice that none of the idols that Solomon began to worship were actually gods of Egypt. It was not the result of this marriage. I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. It doesn't doesn't give us the freedom to marry unbelievers. That Solomon married this woman, a daughter of Pharaoh. It's not a caveat that gives license to Christians to marry unbelievers. But it's in this capacity that Solomon was a type of Christ. A forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. The marriage of Solomon to a former pagan daughter from a foreign land, a notorious enemy of God, gives us a glimpse of a king who would take a former pagan daughter, a rebel, an enemy of God, and make her beautiful, make her the bride of Christ. And this bride is made up of every, every tongue and tribe. The global rebellion. He took some from every tongue and tribe as a part of that rebellion. And made them his bride, a church that consists of sinners redeemed by his blood and made righteous. You may want to think of it this way. Solomon, the man closest to God in his day, marries the daughter of Pharaoh, a man seemingly farthest from God in his day. And in this way, the marriage depicts the glory of Christ's love and redeeming the vilest of sinners. Those who were far from God are brought near to God by grace. We are the unworthy bride, betrothed for the wedding of weddings. And results of this wedding and this king's love for his bride, the church, is that his name will be remembered in all generations and that nations will praise Jesus forever and ever. So it's a picture of Psalm 45. I want to give us a few points of application before we go. First of all, for the unbeliever. In this room, you haven't trusted that what Christ did for you at the cross was in fact for you. You haven't recognized that your sin has to be dealt with. And that what Jesus did when he came to the cross, when he came to this earth, went to the cross and died on the cross for your sins. That your sin actually nailed him there. That your lies and your cheating and your coveting and your lusting. Put Jesus on the cross. If you've not recognized that, your application is simple and it's come to Jesus. Christopher Ash relates a story of George Whitfield preaching to a society of young women in London in the 18th century. And George Whitfield said this to those who would refuse Christ as he was preaching. He said, I shall speak a few words to those of you who have not yet espoused yourselves to the Lord Jesus. It is a great sin, and surely you highly affront the Lord that brought you. It is your folly to choose rags before robes, dross before gold, pebbles before jewels, built before a pardon, wounds before healing, defilement before cleansing, deformity before comeliness, trouble before peace, slavery before liberty, the service of the devil before the service of Christ. Hereby you choose dishonor before a crown, death before life, hell before heaven, eternal misery and torment before everlasting joy and glory. And need there a further evidence of your folly and madness in refusing and neglecting Christ to be your spouse? Why would anyone? 
who reads this psalm or sings this psalm not want to be brought into this bridegroom's family, to be brought into the bride of Christ. Christ has fought the battle for your soul, unbeliever. He dealt with your sins because you could not. He took your sins upon himself on the cross and died on your behalf, a sacrifice for your sins. Look to him today and do what every Christian in this room had to do. And that is forget the former pleasures. Forget the praise of this world. Leave behind the ways of the flesh and the desires of this world and cling to Christ. We are to be enamored by the beauty of our King, our Lord. So renounce this world before it's too late. And that's really an application for everyone in here. Forsake. That word forsake. It's the second application for unbelievers and believers both. Forsake your sin and the things of this world. What do you need to leave behind in order to become a part of the bride of Christ? Think of leaving and cleaving from Genesis 2. Leave behind the ways of the flesh, the desires of the world. You're no longer free to covet the pleasures and the praise of this world. Instead, we are to be enamored by the beauty of our King, our Lord. Renounce before it's too late. A third point of application from this text is to rejoice. Rejoice. Karl Barth said this. He said, joy is a defiant nevertheless. I love that. Joy is a defiant nevertheless. Because the basis of our sorrow today is temporary, but the basis for our joy is eternal. Regardless of our current situation, we can rejoice knowing that we needed a rescue and an eternal rescue, and Christ provided that. We did not need modification. We needed a rebirth. We needed a rescue. We did not need improvement. We needed restoration. We did not need help. We needed newness. We were lost. And the angel brought good news of great joy, mega joy, that will be for all the people. When the angel said that, you and I were included in that phrase. A joy for all the people. E. Stanley Jones observed this. He says, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, they said, look what has come into the world. Could that be the change in attitude that we might have this Advent season? No more look what the world has come into, but look what has come into this world. The last point of application I have for us is to prepare Prepare. How? How might we prepare? We behold Jesus. We look to Christ. The scriptures are clear, especially in the the prophets, that we become like what we behold. So if you behold false gods, then you become like the false gods. You can't hear and you can't see. But if you behold Christ, you become more and more like Christ. And so we watch Jesus. We behold Christ and we wait Bonhoeffer said this, he said, Advent is always happening. And we wait for the return of Christ. Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. It's the last thing, the last thing he said about himself in the Bible is found in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The bright morning star being the star that appears at the darkest point in the night. That in your darkest moments, in your sorrow, in your sadness, perhaps depression, this Advent season. If you have Jesus in your life, if you behold, even if it's just a glimmer, then you have hope. And he follows that up with saying, surely I am coming soon. So we come to Jesus, we forsake all previous loves, we rejoice in our King, and we prepare for the day that we will see Him once again. I'm going to read Revelation 19, verses 9 and 10. And David, you guys can come up if you'd like. I'm going to close with this. 
This is about the, the great wedding in Revelation 19. And then I'm going to close with a prayer by a man named Scotty Smith, who is a pastor in Franklin, Tennessee. He wrote this prayer in response to Revelation 19. And I'm going to close in prayer with that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Lord Jesus, it's easy to understand why John fell down to worship the angel who delivered this exhilarating vision. For our oldest longings, our greatest cravings and deepest yearnings are married to you and your return. Even when we forget or ignore you, our hearts ravenously desire you. We are fools to think there's some sort of circumstances, some person, some romance, some change in our world that can satisfy this eternal restlessness in our hearts. You are the most loving and tender bridegroom who cherishes a most unlikely and ill-deserving bride, us. You died to make us yours. You removed our garments of guilt and shame and dressed us in the magnificence of your grace and righteousness. You pray for us constantly, delight in us fully, and will return for us with great joy. Because we are guaranteed a place at this banquet, we too desire to fall down and worship you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, renew our hearts, restore our joy, refresh our passion for you. Jesus, until the day we join you at the marriage supper of the Lamb, free us to love one another as you love us. Adjust our expectations of mere people, spouses, children, and friends. Heal our greatest relational wounds. In our temporary marriages, bring gospel perspective, fresh encouragement, and graceful kindness. So we pray in your merciful and mighty name.